All right. In the book, 1,000 Small Sparrows, a book written by Jeff Leland, tells the story of how in March of 1992, Jeff Leland and his wife Christy of Seattle, Washington, found out that their baby boy, Michael, who was at the time seven months old, was diagnosed with cancer and he needed a bone marrow transplant. Little Michael's oldest sister, Amy, or older sister, Amy, was, was a perfect match, but the cost of the operation was $200,000. And Michael needed to have the transplant done within 90 days in order to live. To make things worse, Jeff's health insurance at the junior high school where he was teaching didn't, didn't cover the procedure, which at that time was somewhat experimental. A fellow teacher named Joe Kennedy told uh, his class about Mr. Leland's situation, and a young seventh grade boy named Damien Sharkey walked with a limp. He struggled in special ed classes, teased and razzed by lots of kids in mean sorts of way. He, he heard about little Michael, and he visited the Leland home, and he said, Mr. Leland, don't make a big deal out of this, but if your baby's in trouble, I want to help out. And little Damien, the kid who was teased because of his disabilities, he reached out his hand and stuffed 12 $5 bills into Jeff's hand. It was his life savings of 60 bucks. A word got out about Damien's gift. Some kids organized a walk-a-thon. Others contacted a local newspaper. Others held a car wash. Pretty soon a, a kid's wave of compassion kind of poured out across the Seattle area. Area TV stations kind of picked up the story. The response from the news stories was overwhelming. And in four weeks, Damien's gift of $60 had turned into 227000 the Michael Leland Fund. And uh, little Michael got the bone marrow transplant. He lived. The Lelands went on to establish a foundation to help children with medical needs like Michael's. They call it the Sparrow Club meaning a small, seemingly insignificant gifts can turn into something amazing. Thus, uh, thus Jeff's book name, 1,000 Sparrows. Damien, the boy who gave sacrificially so someone else could live, accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior after becoming close with Michael's family, who led him to the Lord. But having struggled for years with physical problems of his own, Damien died eight years later from complications from a leg infection. Michael Leland lives on to tell Damien's story. He was the unlikely hero who gave everything he had to save the life of somebody else. And in the process, he received everlasting life when he trusted Jesus Christ as his Savior. You've probably all heard the phrase, love your neighbor as yourself. But do you know its origin? And do you really understand what it means? I thought this Valentine's Day weekend, when there seems to be a lot of talk about love, I'd like, to, I'd like to explore that phrase with you, love your neighbor as yourself. Anytime we turn our thoughts toward love in the biblical sense of the word, we are, we are diving into a topic that is as wide and deep as an ocean. We cannot even begin to plumb the depths of God's love. The well-known verse, 1 John 4, 8, tells us that God is love. Uh, but attempting to comprehend everything that is contained in that concept would be quite a stretch for us. Uh, a hymn writer a hundred years ago attempted to describe the love of God this way. He said, The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. 
The guilty pair bowed down with care, God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints' and angels' song. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. The love of God is overwhelming to us, or should be. In fact, if it isn't overwhelming to you, then you either haven't experienced God's forgiveness or you haven't thought about it deeply enough, because the, the love of God is overwhelming. But what should also be overwhelming to us is that God himself commands us to love. Now, if you're a Whitetail Baptist Church veteran, some of you have been listening to me preach for many, many years. You've heard me say this on many occasions over the years. If you're newer to our church fellowship, and we're thrilled to have you, by the way, if you are, then you may not have heard me say this yet, but, but, but love in the Bible is not primarily an emotion. It is a commitment. Our minds, our wills, our emotions are all wrapped up together, but we dare not allow ourselves to be motivated by emotion. That will lead us into a gigantic train wreck in our relationships. We cannot allow ourselves to be motivated by our emotions. We are to be motivated by truth. God tells us the truth, we accept the truth, we believe the truth, we practice the truth, we choose the truth, we live the truth, then we feel good about it. Emotion is not the engine pulling the train. It is the cute little red caboose being pulled along behind our godly choices. The, the, the engine that, that is driving our behavior and is driving our lifestyle is the truth that we know and believe. That's what forms our values and our priorities. Then, when we live like God wants us to live, then we feel good about it. Don't wait to do right until you feel something. It'll, it'll never happen. Do what God says to do, and then good emotions follow. So love is, is, first of all, it is a commitment. It is, it is an act of the will. It is a choice that is based on our values and our priorities. That's why marriage vows say, for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness or in health. They do not say, as long as I feel something. And it's a good thing. Because some Monday mornings, I probably don't feel a whole lot of anything. I'm sort of numb. If I was waiting to, to, to act in a loving way, when I feel something, then you're going to wind up in a gigantic train wreck. See, the biblical concept of love is, first of all, a commitment to act in the best interest of others. And we could spend hours demonstrating that to you from the Bible, but we want to get to our specific thoughts today, and I'm pretty sure most of you already get that. Biblical love is, first of all, a commitment to act in the best interests of others. So this phrase, love your neighbor as yourself. 
That phrase originally appeared first in the Old Testament, God speaking to Moses, giving him the laws that he wanted the children of Israel to follow. And I want to show you the phrase and its context where it first appears in the Old Testament. It's in Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus in chapter 19. Leviticus is not a book that lots of modern people read today. And, uh, and when they do, they get maybe lost along the way. It's the third book in the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. If you're, if you're not familiar with where it is. In one of my crazier thought moments as I was looking through some of this, I thought that, that, that could be, uh, or, this, or this could be uh, the, next, the next Christian movie title for the theaters. Lost in Leviticus, which a lot of people are. Anyway, we won't get lost in Leviticus today, okay? but we're going to look at chapter 19, third book in the Old Testament, chapter 19, and I want to read just a couple of passages to you from it, and you will see the context of where this phrase came from. Let's begin to read, first of all, in verse 11. We won't read the entire chapter. In fact, the whole book of Leviticus is quite fascinating. But Leviticus 19, I'm going to start to read in verse 11. God speaking to Moses, through Moses to the people, You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not cheat your neighbor, nor rob him. The wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you all night until morning, meaning pay him, pay him, you usually paid a guy that night after he finished working for you all day. You shall not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind, but shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go about as a talebearer among your people, nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Then look down at verse 33. And if a stranger dwells with you in your land, you shall not mistreat him. The stranger who dwells among you, meaning an outsider, a foreigner, somebody who's not Jewish, the stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you. You shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So God lays down his laws regarding relationships in these verses in ways that sound a lot like the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. Don't steal from each other. Don't lie to each other. Don't lie about each other. Don't profane my name. In other words, don't use God's name in in, in, in any sort of profane way. Some people often ask me, how would you describe that? Well, the way I usually describe that is this. If you're not talking to God, or you're not talking about God, then, then don't talk, then don't use God's name. If you aren't talking about God to somebody else, or you're not, you're not talking to God in prayer, then don't use God's name. Because that would be in a profane way. 
So he says, don't, don't steal from each other, don't lie to each other, don't lie about each other, don't profane my name, don't, don't cheat your neighbor, don't swindle anybody out of anything, don't be mean to the disabled. That's what he means. He says, don't put a stumbling block in the way of the blind, don't be mean to the disabled, don't be a gossip, don't hate people in your heart, don't hold grudges or be vengeful. But he says, love your neighbor as yourself. And God goes even further to include people who are outsiders. The people who were not Jewish, people who were not part of the Hebrew tribes. He says, God says, don't mistreat them either. God says, you, you treat the outsiders and the foreigners, treat them like you treat your Hebrew relatives. Treat them like, like you want to be treated. Don't forget about all those generations of your ancestors who were in Egypt. And, and be kind to these folks who were not born in your country. And, and treat them like they were born right down the road from you. And then he puts that very strong phrase several times. We saw, I am the Lord. God often, added, God often added that reminder. And he's basically saying, this is not a suggestion. This is not optional. This is not do it if it works out. This is not do it if you feel like it. This is, I am commanding you to do this. And I am the Lord. Meaning, I am the king is speaking. I am the sovereign ruler of the universe speaking. I am the Lord your God. So you do this. Love your neighbor as yourself, he says. And not just your Hebrew relatives. That's where the phrase originated. Now fast forward 1,500 years. The Lord Jesus Christ is walking the earth. He's teaching, he's preaching, he's discipling, he's healing, he's forgiving, he's declaring himself to be the promised Messiah. And he's facing a lot of opposition from the religious establishment, the powers that be, as we often say. You know, the average person was, was quite taken by the ministry of the Lord Jesus, and thousands were coming to hear him preach, but he was a real threat to the religious leaders and the power trip that they were on. So there was a lot of opposition to Jesus, especially in the final year of his ministry. And we see a very interesting exchange that takes place in Matthew in chapter 22. The Gospel of Matthew in chapter 22. If you will turn there, I hear the pages turning, that's good. The Gospel of Matthew and chapter 22. We will not read the whole exchange, it's about 15 or 20 verses. But I'll just give you kind of the context, or we'll set the stage with what's going on. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 22, look at verse 15. Matthew twenty-two fifteen. Then the Pharisees <clears throat> went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. So that tells you that's what's going on here. All of their questions were not honest questions. The Pharisees were scheming as to how they could make Jesus look bad. And so they said they, they, they plotted how they could entangle him in his talk, how they could mess up what he was used to say this, what about this, what about that, and trying to find some way to trip up Jesus. Now, from our standpoint, when we think about that, that is so ridiculously stupid. Jesus Christ wrote the law. He's the author of the law. And they think that they're going to try to somehow confuse him about the law? I don't think so. But, of course, they didn't recognize who he was. So the Pharisees went and plotted how they could entangle him in their word. If you read the next few verses, you would see that they came up with this one test. Jesus kind of blew their arguments out of the water. Then the Sadducees, starting in verse 23, they kind of give it a shot. And, uh, and, and, and Jesus sort of leaves them speechless with his answer. 
And so the Pharisees try again, and Jesus answers them very clearly from Scripture, which we'll see. And then Jesus asks them a question that they can't answer. And if you look down at verse 46, it says, No one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. They finally just gave up. They say, okay, we can't, we can't make this guy stumble. We can't trick this guy. We can't figure out. We can't, no matter what scheme we try or what anger we come at it, he always has an answer for everything we say, and it's always right, and we don't know how to respond. Okay, I guess the next step was just trying to figure out how to kill him. And that's what they did. That was, of course, in the sovereign plan of God, Jesus allows them to do that so that he could die for our sin in fulfillment of the scriptures. Well, look with me at this wonderful teaching of the scripture of, of the Lord Jesus, and we're going to start in verse 34. You can read the whole section sometime. It's, it's, it's wonderful what we started in 15 up to 46, but let's just look at verse, starting in verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. This is their second shot at him. One of them, a lawyer, meaning a scribe, someone who interprets the law, not a lawyer in the sense that we think of a lawyer today, but a person who, who would interpret the Old Testament law. He asked him a question, testing him, and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now, anyone who has been forgiven by Jesus Christ has no trouble believing that the greatest commandment ever given would be for us to love God with our entire being. Your, your, your inner man, your heart, your whole person, your soul, your total thinking processes, your mind. And remember, as we said a few moments ago, love, love is not a feeling. Love is a commitment. It is a total commitment of everything about us, Jesus says. Total devotion to God in our entire being, which I hasten to add, we undoubtedly fail at every day. How many of you could honestly say, I know you won't raise your hand. If, if you do raise your hand, you've got some serious problems, so don't raise your hand. That every single day, every waking moment of your life, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. Now I can raise both hands and say I fail. Every single day, all day, every day, I am so totally committed to God that I love Him with every ounce of my being. Now, I may be feeling emotional and say something like that, but literally, it's every single waking moment of my life, I'm loving God with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind. God knows that is not true of, of any of us. We're all sinners. That's why Jesus was coming. But yet, that is the goal. That's a very high bar. That, that's the greatest commandment. Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Hebrew people call it the Shema. They get up and quote it every morning. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. But then notice, Jesus goes on. And he says, and the second is like it. And you say, wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. The lawyer didn't ask for the top two. He only asked for the top one. 
What is the great commandment? Jesus didn't have to say this. Jesus didn't have to add this. The Pharisee didn't ask for it. So it must be incredibly important, and it is, because Jesus makes two very important statements about it. He says this second commandment, which the Pharisee didn't ask for, he said it is just as important as the first one, and he says put together, they summarize the teaching of the entire Old Testament. He says on these two commands hang the entire teaching of the law and the prophets. Everything in the Old Testament, he said, you, you, if, if you could do this, you would fulfill it all. Now this is interesting, this same teaching of Jesus is recorded in Mark chapter 12 and in Luke chapter 10. Mark records that the scribe or the lawyer responded to Jesus by agreeing with what Jesus said and saying that if we could do this, if we could actually do this, that scribe said to Jesus, it would be, it would be better than all of the burnt offerings and sacrifices that a person could ever offer to God. You see, he understood, apparently, according to the Gospel of Mark, he understood the ancient truth spoken by the prophet Samuel, that to obey is better than sacrifice. And when he, when, when he said that to the Lord, he said, you have spoken well, teacher. And he said, I agree, if, if one could do that, if one could love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and somebody could love his neighbor as himself, he said, that would be better than any sacrifice you could ever bring to God. And Jesus looked at him and said, hey, you are not far from the kingdom of God. In other words, he says, listen, my friend, you're, you're catching on. You're, you're, you're getting it. As Samuel said to Saul there in 1 Samuel 15, to obey is far better than sacrifice. Now in Luke's gospel, when he records this, this particular saying, it appears that maybe a different lawyer asks him the question, the, the, what is the great commandment? Because when Jesus responded this same way, Luke records that the lawyer didn't agree with Jesus, but he tried to justify himself, and he asked that famous question, who is my neighbor? Love your neighbor as yourself, and he says, in fact, the scripture specifically says in Luke, in Luke, in, in Luke, or, uh, Luke chapter 10, who is my neighbor? The lawyer says, okay, well, I've got to love my neighbor as myself, okay, Jesus, who's, who's my neighbor? And then Jesus answers that by giving that marvelous, beautiful parable that we call the Good Samaritan. You know, interestingly, Jesus never answers the question, who is your neighbor? What he says to the lawyer after he tells the story of the Good Samaritan, he says to him, who was the neighbor to the guy who got beat up and rolled? But he didn't use that terminology, but you know what I'm talking about. And of course, the lawyer says, well, it was, it was the one who stepped in to help. He, he was the neighbor. Jesus says, you're right. Now go and do likewise. You see, Jesus always turns the spotlight back toward us. What, what is going on in our hearts that needs adjusting? When we think of loving our neighbor as ourselves, the question is not, who is my neighbor? The question is, who am I? What is going on in my heart that needs adjusting? This command is repeated by the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans and in Galatians. It's repeated by James in chapter 2 of James, and where James calls it the royal law, the law given by the king. 
But look with me, if you would, at Romans chapter 13, and I want you to see how the Holy Spirit explained through the Apostle Paul what this was all about and, and, and how we should understand this teaching. Romans chapter 13. Romans 13, we're going to start to read in verse 8. The Apostle Paul writes, Romans 13, 8, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet, and if there is any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. See, Paul says, if you love your neighbor, you won't steal from him. If you love your neighbor, you won't lie about him. If you love your neighbor, you won't, you won't lie to him. You won't covet his stuff. You certainly won't murder him. Love does no harm to a neighbor, he says, so love fulfills the law. Now think about with this with me for just a second. If I say to you, I just love God so much, you might think, okay, if you say so. Because loving God tends to be invisible. You know, now you might think I'm religiously committed and you can sort of see that, but you can't really see how much I love God. I can say whatever I want and you can't really see that. that, that that's kind of invisible. But if I say, oh, I just really love my neighbor as myself, then we're into some very visible things. I can say, I love my wife as much as I love myself. And you know what? You'll be looking for proof. Oh, yeah? Is that right, Larry? Oh, yeah? Maybe I'll talk to Carol about that. See if she thinks you love her as much as you love you. I can say, I love my friends like I love myself. You'll, you'll be looking for evidence. You see, the, the, the second command that Jesus gave the scribe is very visible, very open. Love does no harm to a neighbor, Paul writes, and it's easy for us to see that because everybody knows how we treat the people around us. So loving God, that may be somewhat invisible, but loving your neighbor as yourself, that's very visible. British writer G.K. Chesterton wrote, We make our friends, we make our enemies, but God makes our next door neighbor. <laughs> Interesting thought. We make our friends, we make our enemies, but God gives us our next door neighbor. The old scripture language, Chesterton said, shows so sharp a wisdom when it spoke because God isn't speaking about our duty toward humanity in general, but our duty toward the guy next door, the guy down the road. Our duty toward humanity may seem so noble, but when we have to love our neighbor because he's there... It's a lot more alarming. Our neighbor is the sample of humanity that God has actually given us to love. That'd, be, that'd give you something to chew on. Our neighbor is the sample of humanity 
that God has actually given us to love. Writer John Bloom says the idea of loving our neighbors is so beautiful as, as long as it remains an idealized abstract concept. But the concrete reality of loving our neighbor, that's a very real, exasperating person that we might not have chosen as our neighbor and we might prefer to escape. He said that strips all the beauty away, or so we're tempted to think. This, this beauty of idealized love is imaginary, and the beauty of real love is revealed in the call of self-denial, to love the sinner who has actually been given to us. You know, our, our, our nearest neighbors are the ones who live in our house. And the ones we don't live with, but we're related to them. And sometimes our family and our relatives are the hardest ones to love. Because we see them all the time and we know all their faults. So they have the potential of being the most annoying to us. Other neighbors would include maybe some folks in our church family. You know, sometimes God may bring a person uh, into our fellowship and may, may like to sit on your row who might test your spiritual maturity. And of course, we've all got actual, real, but we think of the term neighbors of those in our, in, in our community. So perhaps maybe in the parable of the Good Samaritan, our neighbor might be a stranger. But most likely, our neighbor lives in our house, in our community, or we sit in the same building with them on Sunday. Are we as concerned for the well-being of others as we are for ourselves? Our love for God may be mostly visible, or in, in, invisible rather, but our commitment to our neighbor is very visible. And the point of Jesus' command is that we ought to be just as concerned about the happiness of others as we are for our own happiness. And let me wind up our thoughts with this in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount, I'd like to read you verse 12. Matthew 7 verse 12. You will recognize it immediately. You've heard it quoted even if you don't know where the reference was. Matthew 7 and verse 12, Jesus says, Therefore, for whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. It's the famous golden rule people speak about. Whatever you want people to do to you, do also to them. And he says again, this is the law and the prophets. This fulfills the law and the prophets. It's another way of saying, love your neighbor as yourself. You treat them the way you want to be treated. Yeah, that, that's why the love for our neighbor is very, very visible. And I can say whatever I want about how much I love God, but if I say how much I love my wife, everybody's going to know if I'm telling the truth or not, because they can see it. They can see how I treat her. If I say I love the people in my church, people are going to see that. And they're going to know exactly if I'm telling the truth or not. It's very, very visible. So the Pharisee got a lot more than he was counting on. What's the great commandment in the law? Jesus, uh, Jesus says, I'll, I'll tell you the great one, and then I'll give you a second one that's just as important as the first one. Love your neighbor as yourself. And on those two commands hangs all the law and the prophets. Showing kindness to the least and the last and the lost and the lonely and the unloved 
and extending God's grace to hurting and heartbroken people that he brings into our lives. That is our calling as followers of Jesus. Love God with all of our being and be as concerned about others as we are about ourselves, Jesus says, for I am the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, it is such a challenge for us to live up to these verses. We are all at the very core of our sin nature. We are all very self-centered. That's what we battle with. As the Apostle Paul so aptly said in Ephesians 5, nobody ever hated his own flesh. We all love ourselves. It's a, part of our, it's a part of our very core of our human nature. But Lord, when we can be loving you with all of our being and aiming toward that, when we can be loving others and being as, as concerned about others as we are about ourselves, Lord, then we have fulfilled the law and the prophets. Forgive us for our failures in this regard. And I pray, Lord, that we will be known as folks who love you and love one another. And may they see it in what we say and what we do and how we live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'd like to sing this little uh, song that we just ended with a moment ago. Come lonely heart to the outsider's friend. be a friend to the outsider, that we'll be a friend to the outcast, that we will minister to the lonely, to the hurting, to the heartbroken, to the grieving. May we be a friend like the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to love our neighbor as ourself. Thank you, Father, for these who are here today. Take us home with your blessing. May we be striving every day to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and love our neighbor as ourself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.